Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Bailey, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Adam Butler, Principals at Resolve Asset Management Global. Running us today, Jason Buck, Co-Founder and CIO at Mutiny Funds. Jason Buck is a serial entrepreneur and trader specializing in volatility, options, hedging, and portfolio construction. He's the founding partner and chief investment officer of Mutiny Funds with over 20 years of cross-asset class trading experience. Jason and his firm Mutiny Fund specialize in deploying funds and strategies to make tail hedging available to smaller investors, such as high net worth individuals and family offices. He's a globetrotter, a rug dealer, a former D1 soccer player and IMG Academy graduate. Jason lives in Napa Valley, California. We hope you enjoy our conversation. And before we get started, please hit that subscribe button. Your likes, comments, and ratings help us reach even more people like you. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Jason, great to have you on again. How are you doing? Well, that was an amazing intro, Pierre. I appreciate it. Uh, happy to see all you gentlemen again. Happy to be back on the show. Just want to clarify in the intro there, that was Rug, R-U-G, not D-R-U-G dealer. Uh, from my, from well, you my, did that on purpose, right? Exactly. From, yeah. from my misspent youth in Istanbul. No, I, he said Rug. I just wanted to make sure it was clear for the audience. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's wonderful. Uh, so, Jason, I, I, I uh, you know, going back to episode seven, where we spoke to you first, um, I don't know how long ago that was about, maybe 18 months ago, something like I think that. It was about a year ago. Spring of, R- roughly a year ago. I th- yeah, I, about a year ago. Yeah. yeah. So, something that you said stuck with me, and uh, just to preface our conversation today, which was that, that you know, you try to fire clients at the top of the funnel when when people come your way and and then and and it's not likely that that someone who is inexperienced or or doesn't have the experience and knowledge required to become uh knowledgeable or or a client of yours for that matter uh (laughs) you'll get why i'm i'm uh, going here i'm just curious to know how many times does an investor have to get the shit kicked out of them before they they come to the conclusion that there has to be a better way to be a long-term investor man than getting you know the shit kicked out of me so many times what's the average number of times when your clients when people become your clients <laughs> yeah exactly so, how, how many, 20 and still counting <laughs> how many, yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking from how my own personal before, experience like in your experience when people relay their experience as investors to you when they become your client uh how many times on average are you do you think it is that that they've gone through you know, just this, this, uh, getting the crap knocked out of them in the market. I wish I could give you like a succinct answer. Like it's three, 
but uh, the result guys actually been writing about this for <laughs> decades of like, you know, how many times yes. does it take? And I'm, I'm somebody that's a glutton for punishment. I have to learn from my own mistakes. But then we have people like my business partner, Taylor, who can like learn from others' mistakes. I, I'm never going to learn that lesson. I don't know how people do that, but I, I, have to, I have to have the physical pain to actually learn my own lessons. And it took me a couple of times, honestly, yeah. to learn. Um, so we run the phone gamut. So, I mean, I, we have some older investors that it's happened to, obviously, you know, several times. And then we even have younger investors that have, have just sold their first business. They had the first liquidity event and they're just looking to have broad diversification and hedges on right away. So they didn't even have to like really fight through anything or learn any hard lessons. So I think it's like the full gamut of descriptions. And then as you referenced is, um, you know, we're not uh, elitist in any sense or in, in, in any way. It's just like what I say about firing clients is like, we're trying to find the right clients and everybody on, on this. On yeah, the, yeah. Like yeah. Everybody in this conversation knows this is like, you can't convince anybody of anything. Like that's really difficult. So if somebody believes in 60, 40 index funds yeah. and low fees and, and not, not having any hedges or never using um, hedge funds or anything with any sort of, um, you know, management performance fee, there's absolutely zero way of me convincing them. And so what we're trying to do with the way we structured our business is we're just trying to find like-minded clients. And so if that's, you know, 1% of the population, we're gonna have to filter through that 99%. And so when they come to us, if they haven't, you know, read a Nassim Taleb book or a Chris Cole white paper or a Mart Spitznagel book or, or white paper, um, you know, if they're not looking for, um, you know, defensive asset classes, then there's no way of me convincing them to do that. And so like, I just don't like to beat my head against the wall, but also it, it really is in the interest of the client because just as much as we want you know, sticky long-term capital for what we do, it's the same for the client because if they behaviorally um, don't really grok this into their bones, then they're likely to jump in and out and that's gonna hurt their compounding nevertheless anyway. So we're just looking for that synergy uh, from both our perspective and their perspective. That way we'll both be in this together for the long haul. Yeah, I think I, it has a long I, tail. Right, like um, the vast, yes, vast, you, vast majority of people never get there. Right, they, they're done looking in that direction. They're not interested in investing. They're reluctantly putting money in the market because there's a default option on their four hundred one k or their you know RSP in Canada, and they're not giving any thought to this at all. They're not reading. They might be reading the business section or something, but it just never occurs to them. And then there's a very small, vanishingly small sliver of of investors who are curious about how they might be able to improve their um, their lot. They go through a few bad experiences and and maybe start to contemplate the fact that that there may be something out there that that might be helpful and go seeking that. But I, you know, I don't know about you guys, but 99 out of 100 people that that we might come across in our lives don't care at all about markets and are not the least bit interested in in looking for better solutions. Um, no matter how many um, ups and downs on the roller coaster that they experience. I just, I just do want to note that above, above your right shoulder, it says <laughs> add acid. So I don't know what kind of drug dealing you're doing, but I, I, I can see why you clarified your position. Any, well, any, these are just, anyway, these are just legal drugs. All podcasts, yeah. <laughs> all podcasts add acid. I can't unsee that okay, now, dude. What is that? What does that mean exactly? But, anyway. Uh, yeah, I was by no means insinuating yeah. that that you were uh, elitist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I didn't. I didn't take any yeah. offense. I just want to clarify. It just and by the way, I'm just going to like I'm just taking the ball and running with it. I'm just babbling. I have no idea what yeah. I'm saying either. He's just, completely elitist. Trying to help out. Yeah. I mean, let's sell it like it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I was, I'm I was kind you. of, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a winemaker no. and a hedge fund manager. I'm not elitist at all. Exactly. What? And so I became a hedge fund manager. So I no longer had to talk to the Hoya yeah, Poloi, right? That's right. <laughs> that's too good. But Adam, your comment reminds me of the, the uh, 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 quote I read recently. I, I put it on Twitter as well. Wisdom is sold in a desolate market where no one comes to buy. And I think this is, this is a little bit, I feel this quote in my bones and I, and I, and I relate to it with someone like Jason and ourselves who do feel like we've been on a very different trajectory than general markets have been over the last decade, right? The wisdom of managing risk or thinking about portfolios in a hundred year time frame. And then digging below the surface in that and saying, well, the only time frame we're looking at is the hundred years we've had. And what makes that so special in the last 20 hundred year periods as being something that we should actually even give any credence to. So this is all pretty squishy. Um, and I think your uh, question, Pierre, really kind of uh, leads to a place where I wanted Jason to walk us through kind of step-by-step step from the beginning. How did you come about with mutiny? Because I think that is going to set yes. the table for people today, we have been punched in the face or typical 60, 40 portfolios have been kicked in the nuts, punched in the face, whatever you want to say, pretty much since December 31st, 2021. And the idea of risk management, the idea that the structural relationships that have underpinned markets for the last decade might be in flux, might be changing, and the opportunity for them to learn, because again, we learn through pain. Often we learn more through pain than we do through our successes. And what I thought made getting you on this podcast so important and timely now is to walk through your history, walk through a bit of your pain points and why you set up Mutiny. And then we'll jump into some of the things that you do at Mutiny, some of the things we might do at Resolve to think through these problems a little bit more fulsomely, because I do think the audience's receptivity may have changed since the last time we talked about this a year ago. And so that's kind of what I, I, I hope we can get to. And maybe you can just briefly walk us through, you know, your history. I know you've done this in other places, but for the viewers who are new to you and, and, and raise your average, I want you to just walk through that because I think it's extremely informative and leads to, hey, by the way, we do business with people like us who view the markets like us. And so if you're like us, come come and join us. But if you're not, it's it's okay. But let's understand what us is. What is us to you and how you got here? And I think that'll be really helpful in, sh in sort of framing this. When I think we've mentioned pain at least a dozen times. So <laughs> we're just saying, and, and Mike wants to bring up my, my actual, uh, my life pain too. So hopefully I'm not going to cry on this episode as well. Um, but I'll talk about it in maybe two ways. Um, thinking about proper portfolio construction actually means you're going to experience some pain. And then we'll get into that later too. It's like having broadly diversified asset classes means there's at least one of those asset sleeves or asset classes that's going to be providing you some pain that you don't want to hold. But that means proper diversification. If you're completely happy with your portfolio, you don't have proper diversification. And that's what I think a lot of times people have a hard time wrapping their head around. And what I think about a lot lately is a lot of people, are we playing you know status games or wealth games? And I think you know, a lot of people have written about this is most people are playing relative status games with their neighbors. So they don't mind not necessarily have 60, 40 portfolios or target dates if they're experiencing pain, as long as their neighbors experiencing the equivalent amount of pain, or as long as they're keeping up with the, the neighbor when the neighbor's doing well with the S&P 500 or 60, 40, or, or the or Canadian version as well. So the idea though for proper portfolio construction um, 
goes back to, you know, my reference, you know, my, my history was I was an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. And I was running a commercial real estate development company going into the great financial crisis of 2007, 2008. I clearly say 2007 because for most would know that actually real estate tanked in 2007, the market tanked in 2008. So for me, it's really an, an 07 to 08 kind of process. But, you know, coming out of that, what I realized is it doesn't matter how good you are in, idiosyncratically as an entrepreneur. If global liquidity dries up, you're absolutely screwed. Because if you have any sort of uh, business or you're an entrepreneur or you're in commercial real estate development, you usually have you know a two to five year to 10 year timeline on any project that you, you can conceive of to, to actually grow your wealth. And the problem is when you're figuring out your pro forma of what your profit and loss and, and trying to figure out what the project's gonna look like, you need it to be a low vol environment. You need the future environment to look like the environment today. And therefore you are harmed by volatility especially if global uh, volatility picks up and liquidity dries up, it does, like I said, it doesn't matter how good you are, that can reverse on you. So it comes out of that pain of 2007, 2008, um, where I figured there had to be a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk. And so that way, if I could figure out how to manage kind of global market liquidity, I could be much more aggressive as an entrepreneur. And to me, that was a superpower. Now, so imagine like March, 2020, or 2007, 2008, imagine if you had some sort of, um, you know, tail risk insurance or some convexity to your book for the long volatility side, and you got this convex cash position on your book. Now you're sitting on a ton of cash when cash is scarce. And cash has very different values during risk on times versus risk off. You know, a dollar's worth a dollar during, during risk on, but, a, you know, a dollar's worth a lot more in risk off. So if you're able to have that sort of hedge in place, now you're sitting on a bunch of cash that you've now, you know, you built this inventory that now you've sold out of. So you're sitting on a ton of cash when everybody else is desperate for cash. That allows you to make payroll, buy up your competitors for pennies on the dollar, or maybe buy some real estate for pennies on the dollar. And that dramatically helps your compounding over time through multiple business cycles. So thinking about that coming out of 2008, I was like, there has to be a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk because of the pain I felt in 2007, 2008, we were just talking about pain. It's like, it's one thing when you lose your own money, but when you lose money for your family and friends, it's an absolute nightmare. And, you know, and I'll be frank about it. And I've talked about it in other places, you know, you're essentially like kind of in the fetal position, um, both physically and, and um, almost like mentally for maybe years after that, where you're trying to restore the balance to what you had in your life, because it is, is an existential crisis where you have to really figure out kind of what happened and go through it and work through all the uh, the emotional strife of going through that. So coming out of that, I figured there had to be a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk. So that's why I set out to try to solve. And, you know, I traded, you know, options even before the GFC. What's even worse was I was shorting actually a lot of those, those countrywides and all the other mortgage providers coming out of 2007 because I knew exactly who were the riskiest lending providers because I was working with clients that were using them. But because I wasn't a professional options trader and I didn't know my Greeks well, I was shorting those mortgage providers in those banks and actually losing money. So to add insult to injury, I was adding pain on top of pain. So coming out of the 2007, 2008s, when I really had to learn about options Greeks and applied volatility and it's the price you pay and, you know, implied versus realized. And I think a lot of the um, meme stock, you know, YOLO traders that we saw in the last few years, they're going to learn the same lesson, which is great. Like you'd learn your lessons and you move on from it. So I had to learn about my options Greek and what it looked like to professionally trade options. And then 2012-ish, I figured out a um, what we call an intramarket spread, which is the S&P 500 versus the VIX and using the futures and getting your ratios right and trying to have like a market neutral to long volatility position that way. Um, trying to maybe either capture the volatility risk premium if it exists or also being long volatility at the same time. So you can kind of mess around with your ratios and figure that out. 
But you know, doing that around 2015, I started to track a lot of the other managers in the long volatility space. Um, a lot of options traders, a lot of VIX traders, and just kind of watching what they do versus what I did. And then 2018, um, I got to know my partner, Taylor Pearson, a little bit. We were actually uh, put together by a mutual friend where we were talking about uh, stable coins in, in crypto. Because to me, like an actual, um, a properly diversified portfolio should look like a stable coin. Essentially, you want to hold all the world's asset classes and rebalance frequently. And then you don't care what your government's telling you is the inflation rate because you have this whole basket of the world's asset classes. So your basket is essentially the inflation rate. And because we want our savings to just outpace inflation, um, that's why I was so kind of fascinated by stable coins. So we started talking about stable coins, but then... Um, Taylor brought up that he was going to invest in a long volatility manager. And, I, and so I started breaking down to him. There's a lot of path dependencies to a risk off scenario. And there's a lot of different ways to play long volatility and tail risk. So, you know, what are we going to do to you know, mitigate all these other path dependencies? And what we came to terms with is we're probably better entrepreneurs than traders. So we set out to um, figure out how to start a fund where accredited retail investors could have access to the best managers in the long volatility and tail risk space. And the reason we did that is because I had already been building these total portfolio solutions, but the real missing piece was this long volatility and tail risk that retail didn't have access to. It re usually required, you know, 20 to $100 million to get access to these managers. So we wanted to figure out how to put that together and provide them access at a lower cost base. And then the second one that people had a hard time getting access to was um, CTA trend followers, commodity trend followers. And because, you know, a lot of the 40 acts or other vehicles, you don't really get their best A game, but to get their best A game in a separately managed account, you're usually going to acquire 5 million per manager. So once again, we figured this out is like, if we do our ensemble approach to, to commodity trend followers as well, we want to provide access to people to get their A game as well. But the idea was, if we build these two pieces that are really hard for people to access, we can then overlay the other pieces to our total portfolio solution that we call Cockroach. And the idea is we have global stocks, global bonds, long volatility, commodity trend, and we have a gold and a little bit of cryptocurrency. So once again, holding all the world's asset classes and rebalancing frequently. But the idea that I have for the way we construct portfolios, actually, um, it goes back to the 1970s, and it's Harry Brown's permanent portfolio. But the actual the concept for proper diversification goes all the way back to the Talmud, which was like a third each in like real estate business and cash reserves. You know, you fast forward, you know, Jacob Fugger was, uh, you know, allegedly the richest man in the world in Germany in the 1490s. Once again, proper portfolio diversification of holding uh, in all the different asset classes he could he could garner. Um, it even goes forward to um, the original, you know, hedge fund was the idea of being long and short because you want to play offense and defense. But we feel the seminal work was in uh, 1972 by Harry Brown, and he came up with his permanent portfolio. And the idea was a permanent portfolio is you had the four quadrant model where you're on the axes of growth or inflation. So either in uh, growth or decline, inflation or deflation. And that's that four quadrant model that then uh, Ray Dalio and Bridgewater went down to copy that made very popular. Um, didn't give any credit to Harry Brown, but that's another story. Um, but that's, that's the kind of, whenever you see anybody that has the four quadrant model, it goes back to Harry Brown in the 1970s. So what Harry Brown did is he said, okay, I just, I can't predict the future. I want to, I want to manage my savings in a way where no matter what kind of future environment we're in, I, I can be okay. My, my savings can trundle along and I'll be okay no matter what happens. So that's why he split that four quadrant model into just four equal parts. So it's 25% each stocks, bonds, gold, and cash. This was the Harry Brown permanent portfolio. So for growth, he had stocks. Uh, for deflation or disinflation, he had bonds. For recessions or declines, he had cash. And for inflation, he used gold. So this, like I said, he came up with this in the 1970s. It's a great portfolio. Um, you can go back and track it over 10, 20, 40, 100 years, whatever you want to do. But like basically, it kind of clips along at like 4% real returns after inflation. 
So that once again, if you're sa- you just want your savings to outplace inflation <clears throat> with as low volatility and as low drawdowns as you possibly can handle, because that keeps you from doing anything uh, behaviorally stupid, for lack of a better term. Because what everybody doesn't think about is everybody goes, oh, the stock return, the stock has returned X over the last 100 years. Well, that's great. But that's, that's the average ensemble. That's not your personal path dependency. You know, we have sequencing risk when we're investing in markets. And then the worst thing that actually happens is not only are you not putting in money that from the day you saved until the day you retire, but if things happen like in 2007, 2008, and the market's down 50% or 55%, people are likely to cash out and then not get back in for the return. So they've just destroyed all of their compounding. They've crystallized those losses and they haven't got in back in for the rebound. And so therefore it doesn't even matter what the 50 or 100 year return is for the stock market, because you're never going to achieve close to that because you have very different sequencing risk or, uh, or time risk as your personal path dependency would require. And this is a, a fan, the fancy word for that is ergodicity. So the idea was, okay, if this is Harry Brown's permanent portfolio, and then we had more modern versions, like I said, with Ray Dalio, uh, a mutual friend, our mutual friend, Med Faber has done great works with his Trinity portfolio. Chris Cole wrote a great white paper called the Dragon Portfolio about these kind of concepts. But ours was always, the idea was we, we debated for a long time when we launched our fund, were we going to launch with the cockroach first or were we going to launch with our long volatility ensemble first? We decided to launch with our long volatility first because we knew that was the piece people needed most to build their own portfolios. But then eventually we, we launched our cockroach in September of last year. But the idea is, you know, going back to Harry Brown is stocks, bonds, cash and gold. Our version is just, we view as a more modern, modern version of Harry Brown's permanent portfolio. We use global stocks global bonds or other um, bond-like in, uh, instruments that can provide you cash flow for disinflation or deflationary environments. Uh, we use long volatility and tail risk instead of cash for those uh, declines or recession-like times or those liquidity events. We want that convexity that that provides. And then instead of just gold for inflation, we use uh, CTA trend followers or commodity trend followers, managed futures. One of these days, these guys are going to figure out the proper name so we can all just agree on it. But those, we feel like by trading those 60 to 80 commodity markets, that has a higher, that allegedly has a higher beta to inflation than just gold. And so that's the problem is gold has that purchase power parity that everybody knows the going back millennia, but it doesn't necessarily work year in, year out, or even decade in, decade out. You need a much longer time horizon. So we view that the commodity trend advisors are likely the better capture of inflation in, in that sense. Then we also, because we are managing you know, people's savings and hopefully over multiple generations, is we also hold a little bit of gold and cryptocurrencies for those fiat hedges, for those really dislocative events. If like markets have to shut down again due to war or confiscation, diaspora, all those sorts of things is once again, I just want to hold all the world's asset classes and rebalance. And that will protect our clients kind of no matter what happens. And lately I've kind of gotten a little bit known because I just try to say, we try to build the least shitty portfolios. Everybody else is trying to be a hero. They're trying to tell you, this is what's going to happen six months from now. You know, some people are saying inflation. Some people are saying deflation. Some people are saying the stock market's about to take off. Some are saying it's going to be the worst Armageddon in history. But to us, if you really attenuated your portfolios to any one of those directions, you're likely to get hurt pretty badly. So I don't want to call the market perfectly. I want to build the least shitty portfolio that will hopefully maintain your savings no matter what comes, you know, six, 12, 18 months from now, five years from now, who knows? And I think the um, one of the key points there that I, I would like to emphasize in in that your own personal lifespan based on some asset class that you come in contact with and you're going to make contributions to, uh, let's say you are uh, a dentist and it's the 70s and equity markets have been an absolute shit show. 
what's the likelihood that you're going to be putting that regular savings into those markets versus 19 late eight 1980s to the 2000s, right? So that we know the cash flows that enter markets don't enter at the points where you are accumulating <laughs> these long-term assets. The behavioral skew is no one wanted equities in the 70s. Wall Street was a desolate, barren wasteland when you know you could have used that 15 years to accumulate all kinds of great assets for the boom from 1982 to 2021. And so you have this behavioral skew that is always working against the investor, generally speaking. It wants to get them in when markets are confident and rolling. And then, as Jason points out, you get some inevitable crash and then they get out and realize the risk and and don't realize the commensurate return. So the, the, this whole concept is really hard. It's hard to stay disciplined. This, is, this comes yeah. back to the quote, wisdom is sold in a desolate market where no one goes to buy. You know, there's just nobody there listening to somebody in 1982 saying, hey, you know, you should have been investing in stocks for the last 10 years because the next 10 years is going to be really awesome. It just doesn't work that way. So there's a lot of behavioral reconditioning, I think, that people need to think about uh, when they go in this. And then the other thing is so important. Make less mistakes. Really, a lot of a lot of what we do as well is about making less mistakes. It's not about being perfect in any one particular area. And I, I think this is the same with cockroach. It's about making less mistakes and making less big mistakes. Yeah, the couple of things I didn't touch on, and I think Mike's nailing it. It was, it was interesting, actually, my conversation with Meb the other day. What we were talking about was like, the longer you're in this game, I wonder if you just become more like a, a Taoist Yoda and you have all these aphorisms because it really comes down to like these simple things. And like you're saying in the 70s, like who was buying stocks? It's like I think often about the the quote that like there's the the bull market, the bull case always has a, a tight thesis at the top and the bear case always has its tightest thesis right at the bottom. Right. Like if we just flash back, you know, a few months from now, you know, recording this on August 22nd, 2022, a few months ago the CapEx story on commodities was so compelling when commodities were ripping, right? And then now it's come off a little bit. Is that story yeah. as compelling, right? We forget about the behavioral effects. Like you're saying, nobody wanted stocks like in the beginning of the 70s, right? And then by the end of the 70s, early 80s, everybody wanted commodities. And like, was it too late? Like, And so how do you attenuate your portfolio when you never know what kind of environment you're going to be in? And I, I talked about Harry Brown's four quadrant model, but even above that, we like to keep it really simple and think about just offense and defense, Everybody has offensive assets. You know, whenever you go to your financial advisor or, or, or you look at your portfolio, you see this big pie chart of diversification. But almost 99, if not 100% of those assets are going to be offensive assets. And what I mean by that is during risk on times, they do exceedingly well. When credit is awash and liquidity is uh, ever present, these assets do really well together. And then when, when liquidity dries up or we have a risk off event, the correlations go to one and they all crash together. So therefore, they're all offensive assets and people don't realize how much of their portfolio they think broad diversification, but it's really just a, a correlation of one with liquidity and risk. And so like when we talk about stocks, bonds, venture capital, private equity, real estate, everything can go into one of those five sleeves, but those are all offensive assets. 
and everybody's portfolio is constructed entirely of offensive assets, which has done primarily pretty well for the last 30 or 40 years. But the question is, what are the next 30 to 40 years going to look like? And so therefore, we try to hedge those offensive assets with defensive assets. The way I try to think about it is, you know, especially, you know, equities, you know, because you can have such terrible sell-offs in equities, that's why we really like the convexity of long volatility and tail risk, because that convexity will really help ballast those drawdowns in equities because you have massive left tails. And then we think about bonds, you know, if you have an inflationary environment, bonds and bond-like instruments are going to get hurt. And that's why those commodity trend advisors, they tend to have a bit of convexity to their, their P&L as well. So it's about combining offense and defense, hopefully in the right proportions, where you have very linear assets that you want to ride during risk on like stocks, bonds, PEs, VCs, real estate, they're going to do really well. They're going to struggle along just fine in a risk on environment. But then when that liquidity dries up, they crash tremendously. And so it's, it's about, you know, combining these two offensive and defensive asset classes to make sure you compound your wealth more effectively, because, you know, sustaining a 50, 70, 80% drawdown, it's going to be really tough to come back to that due to compounding. And so how do you integrate or how do you explain, you know, I think, I think most people get diversification, sort of, right? So you've explained how they get diversification. They diversify a basket of highly offensive. I find assets. them highly offensive too. <laughs> Was that That's offensive or right. ridiculously offensive? Or offensive. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Hey. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. It is. <laughs> so they have these offensive assets. So how do you? So you can you can do so much with diversity and diversification in the portfolio. How do you layer in the volatility at the tail hedging? How do you explain that to folks who are not as familiar with it? I've got to think that that's got to be a harder, uh, a more unique approach. And thus, you know, you're probably starting from a much lower learning level as you're talking to people on it. I know we find this is somewhat of an interesting thing to uh, explain. And so I'm, I'm curious, how do you get folks across? How do you get them to have that aha moment where well, they say, oh, yes, I see. Of course, of course, Jason. So do you, do you have any, any tidbits and help for uh, us and other advisors who are out there trying to build better balanced portfolios for folks and how to convey this um, so that people grasp it more fully? Well, luckily, I'm not necessarily in your seat, so it's a bit different. And that's why I said we're, we're trying to find those clients that are already looking for us, um, you know, because they, they've read that Taleb or that Chris Cole or that Mark Spitznagel. And so they, they're already familiar with the concepts or they even read Harry Brown or they're familiar even with all weather portfolios. So, you know, a lot of people come to us from that all weather, you know, Ray Dalio route, yep. um, which is, you know, that Harry well, that's Bar the diversification point, right, I right. think, right? That's the like Harry Brown, like that's diversification. And we get that and they, they, they might do it wrong with the offensive assets. But how do you so they've come to you and say, but by the way, how does this I like the volatility tail hedging, but how, what do you say to them then? Do, how, this is how we work it in. Do you show them sort of exposure? Do you show them historically how it pays off and how it helps the portfolio with liquidity injections at those moments when liquidity is so important? Like, how do you, is there any magic there? Or is <laughs> it, what I, I know they're just looking for what I was getting and, at at the beginning, no, right? Well, <laughs> you, yeah. Well, this is what, yeah, this is what uh, Mike's yeah. diving in right to the hardest questions. And I know like Adam's just, you know, chomping at the bit to jump in on this because this is the hardest part. So as long as you get it conceptually, that's one thing. And I'll, I'll kind of start conceptually and work my way down. I think Taleb was on a, a newscast recently or, you know, with, you know, within the last year or two, you know, he jumped out of his hidey hole and said, you know, if you don't have insurance, you don't have a portfolio. And I thought that was just such a succinct way of putting it is like, you know, because all of us have, you know, been in these markets for long enough is like, 
all kinds of crazy stuff can happen. A lot of paradoxes, things that you never thought could happen, happen. And so without some sort of insurance, you may not have a, a portfolio moving forward. So what Taleb was saying with the idea of like, if you don't have portfolio insurance, you don't have a portfolio is the idea of like, if you went and bought a multi-million dollar house on the Southeast coast in a hurricane zone, and then you didn't have insurance, like that's insane. None of, nobody would do that. Yet we all do it basically with our portfolios of having all risk on assets or all only offensive assets. That's what we're doing. We're just pretending that hurricanes don't come along, even though like Mike said earlier, a lot of us have seen it in our lifetimes and we felt the pain of it, but when are we gonna kind of learn from it? So that's the kind of, at the high level, is you want some sort of insurance against these events. Um, the other thing that, that we talk to clients about is there's a lot of convexity to these instruments. This is why we trade in, in futures and options is because it gives you a lot of convexity. So you get a really pop um, from these kind of instruments. So then you can use them as a different sort of overlay. Like I said before, is if the risk on assets are very linear during a you know, risk on environment, you know, your stocks are, like I said, they're going along, let's just say the S&P 500 returns like nine to 10%, but with like a 50 to 60% drawdown it has a huge left tail where if you're buying insurance, it, buying portfolio insurance is very similar to house insurance. It's like every every month or every quarter, every year, you have to stroke that check. So it's, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. But then if your $5 million house burns down and they write you a check for 5 million, that's huge convexity to it for like the thousands you've spent every year. And so it's very similar portfolio construction. So if you can overlay on, on top of stocks that have a that have a huge left tail or a huge, huge left tail risk to them, but you overlay a thing that has convexity with right tails, um, that's an interesting portfolio construction because you're basically providing with a negatively correlated convex asset. That's the idea of tail risk or long volatility. Um, partly these names are kind of synonymous and so that's the hard part. So I'll go into a little bit, you know, classical tail risk is the idea that's very similar to insurance is you're just buying, let's say negative 20% out of the money puts against the S&P 500. And what that means is if the stock market goes down negative 10, negative 15, you're probably not going to see any sort of return from that because your attachment points negative 20%. That's your deductible. I think the way Mike's used it before. As soon as you get beyond that negative 20%, you're likely to start to get a one for one coverage of those drawdowns in the S&P 500 beyond that point. And then because of that convexity, if the market draws down 40, 50, 60%, you're likely to accelerate 60, 70, 80% beyond that because you have this gamma or convexity to your options position. So this is the reason why you want to overlay, I think, convex instruments uh, with those linear instruments like stocks. And that's how you can do it in a way um, that helps you maintain a portfolio like that. I think classically, um, you know, what Spitznagel talks about in his book is like 97% um, long S&P with uh, 3% uh, tail risk exposure. And I think uh, even in his uh, literature, he uses that toy example of a negative 20% um, out of the money put option. And so the idea is, you know, you're paying, you know, you're taking a little bit from your gains every year on the S&P side to pay for that insurance. But when that insurance kicks in, those stocks are at such a lower nav point and you're rebalancing back to, you know, that equal nominal amount. So that helps you really compound your wealth over time. But more importantly, I think this gets touched on less and less is emotionally you're equanimous. So that way you don't make those stupid decisions that really hurt compounding. It's not necessarily the markets that hurt compounding. It's our decision-making that hurts compounding under extreme emotional duress. And so therefore, if you have these kind of convex positions as hedges, that allows you to be very calm and be buying back into stocks at that lower nap point. Like if we take March 2020 example, uh, as soon as April 1st rolls around, who's willing to be buying more stocks at that lower nap point? Very few people. But people that had tail risk on had to redeploy that cash, and it was time to rebalance if they had a monthly rebalancing. So that's the kind of issue there. The 
they, then when Mike was asking in, in Pierre as well, it's like, what are the bells and whistles? What can you show clients? This is the hard part. And Adam and I have had many, many discussions about this. And the hard part is you can run all these shock tests on all of your options, positions, and your derivatives to get this convexity from tail risk. But you never know what that future path dependency is going to look like. You never know what's the volatility level we're coming from. How fast is the sell-off? You know, there's so many variables. And how do you monetize that sell-off effectively? Do you monetize it when VIX is in the in the 80 range? Well, if you sell that off, you no longer have protection. Now you're open to a second or third leg down. You know, you've sold out your insurance. So there's a lot of different dynamics that go. I can't be absolutely certain of what my payout would be given a market sell-off. And that's very hard to put in, in any sort of model. Um, and this is why a lot of people I feel don't use tail risk or long volatility is because it depends on the, where, where you bookend it. Like if you want to look back to since 1985, how did long S and P plus tail risk do? Well, you've got the 87 crash in there. You've got the 2000 crash in there. You've got the 2008, you've got 2020. And if you bookend it right behind those, it's going to look amazingly good. But if you, if your bookend starts, you know, one year into a 12 year bull run, it's not going to look very good. So it's just like, it's, it depends, the effect on your compounding are going to be when was the last event happened and how were you able to monetize that event? So the problem is it doesn't fit into any perfect formula for like, um, you know, an efficient frontier or an efficient market hypothesis. Yeah, I, I will add one other thing that I think is very helpful on, on the tail hedge protection side of things is that in that 97.3 example, you get to have 97% of your assets in a risk premia. Right. So preserving the gray matter really matters because you want to compound, let's say, with the equity markets. So you've got the shock absorber on the downside. But the fact that you can maintain all of that exposure in the with these products. So you're getting the risk premium. You're not saying, well, I have to take 50 percent of my portfolio out of a long term asset that has a positive expected return. You're saying, no, no, I can keep 97% in that long-term asset that has that great risk premia over 100 years, and I'm just going to take this little tiny sleeve, and this little tiny sleeve has the ability to have this wonderful convex offset. And that's what, just to kind of highlight what convexity means, it becomes very big from very small start. And that allows you to keep the other monies in whatever, if it's the S&P, if it's a risk parity portfolio, whatever your larger you know, basket of assets that have this trend of long-term um, uh, excess returns to them, you want to be able to make sure you're very conscious of your portfolio real estate, if you will, and so that you're always getting that tailwind from those assets while you're doing these other uh, strategies that help uh, shock absorb in the in the major tails. Yeah, Mike, just Mike hit on the highlight of the real difference is, as we all know, 60-40 wasn't necessarily created because people love bonds. They had to reduce their exposure to equities because equities have such a huge left tail to them. And so like, if we use like a toy model, this is what Spitznagel and Taleb have done such a good, great job of highlighting. But like, once again, this is not investment advice. This is just a rough toy model. But the idea would be, let's say that um, the S&P would return like 9% and 60-40 portfolio would return 6%. Well, if I take you know, if I can take a full allocation of that S&P at 9%, but then I spend 3% on that tail risk insurance, I'm still compounding at like 6%, very similar to 60-40. But when a risk off event happens and liquidity drives up, I've got this amazing convex tail hedge that then allows me to rebalance and redeploy 
into getting into those stocks at a lower nab point. And that helps me compound more efficiently and effectively over the long term and keeps me from doing anything like we we're saying behaviorally or emotionally in that scenario. Because in that scenario, you don't know what kind of ballast the bonds are going to provide. Yep. If they're going to provide a ballast, it's kind of finger in the air. Um, the other thing I didn't touch on generally in portfolio construction with offense, defense, the way we think about it, is the other thing we're talking about is correlations. And, you know, we're talking about all of these offensive assets, their correlations are one, more or less, you know, and correlations go to one in that risk off event. So you want assets that are correlated, uncorrelated and negatively correlated. People do a really good job of combining fairly positively correlated assets. Then sometimes they'll layer in these uncorrelated assets that are structurally uncorrelated the way that commodity trend advisors are. Um, but very few people have these negatively correlated assets that you can get from put options. And it's about those combinations because correlations can move around a lot and we find out what correlations are during a risk off event. But if you can have structurally negatively correlated uh, put options, then that can change the entire profile of your investment portfolio. Jason, how do you think about the fact that, um, and, and I know we've been concentrating on kind of typical 60-40 portfolios or call it equity heavy portfolios, but well, I think you, your, your thinking has obviously evolved because I think that this is what motivated the launch of, of the cockroach strategy. But I think it's also useful to explore the fact that a, that a properly diversified portfolio, that is one that is that has diverse assets that are fundamentally designed to thrive in very different economic environments. So assets that are designed to thrive in right tail kind of inflation environments, others in uh, left tail deflationary environments, and also in, you know, in growth environments they don't tend to have the same kind of tail profile, right? Like you've kind of diversified the left tail and the right tail. Um, you're diversified. If, if you do this properly, you can diversify into a, a much wider variety of different premia, right? If you sort of think about expanding into market neutral factor premia, um, you know, you could easily just with kind of commoditized products that are readily available to most investors, easily get up into the seven, eight un relatively uncorrelated sources of return. And when you, when you get there, you don't have a portfolio with those same kind of left tail exposures, right? And so how, how do you think about whether you need or how much you need to dedicate um, towards these convex tail hedging strategies as you approach more and more diversified kind of um, principal portfolios. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And this is, uh, if it was formulaic, right, I wouldn't have a job. So that's the good news on that part, at least. Maybe maybe one day in the future, the AI will, will supplant me and there's a way to, to deal with negatively correlated assets <clears throat> that happen once every decade. But um, to answer your question, I'll, I think about it this way. Um, like I said, we think about offensive and defensive assets. Other ways of thinking about those are convergent and divergent strategies, right? Any sort of mean reversion convergent strategy typically has a huge left tail or let's call it left skew to that uh, P&L profile. But if you combine it with divergent strategies, like you're saying, if you can get more uncorrelated and more divergent strategies that have right skew, now you're getting a really interesting portfolio. And like you said, you may be able to get up to seven to eight uncorrelated strategies. But once again, I want to really highlight that we're talking about correlated, uncorrelated, and negatively correlated. And what can happen with those uncorrelated strategies, what that means is can be 50% of the time correlated to your risk on assets. So you can get in a real pinch when you're, you're hoping for that uncorrelation. And then what we said is like, 
Correlations are, um, like we said, dynamic. They're moving around all the time. And there's also converging correlations. When a liquidity event like March 2020 happens, you know, those correlations can go to one rather quickly. So you have to worry about, you know, how are you assessing your correlation matrices and how applicable it is to any sort of market environment, right? And it can change dramatically over time. The way I'll say it in another way that I think is interesting is, so for the last, you know, decade or two, like I said, building these total portfolio solutions, I love the idea of combining, you know, stocks, bonds, real estate, PE, VC, combining those with uh, CTAs or commodity trend following strategies, because like you're saying, you can get a lot of uncorrelation there. But that problem is what I was always sitting in my mind is we hadn't seen yet in the modern era where the trend was kind of chugging along and though all of those CTA trend followers, because they're also into financials, FX, et cetera, you know, what happens if we're in an uptrend, they're riding that uptrend. So now they're highly correlated with those risk on assets. And we have a sharp liquidity event that they were on the wrong side of the trend. And I kept talking about that and talking about that prior to 2020. It finally happened in 2020. So that's when we got to see what what that could potentially look like when you have those uncorrelated strategies provide no ballast for your portfolio and you're just in free fall. And then it gets worse because once after it free falls, the, the trend may change depending on the, the speed of their look back. They're getting in on the other side. Then they get whipsawed coming back the other way. And so every strategy has its pros and cons, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just how do you combine these in aggregate and what's the emergent properties of that portfolio? So that's why I feel for those sharp liquidity events, you're going to need those structurally negative correlated assets. And that's what I meant by Taleb saying you need portfolio insurance because you never know what can happen. And when your uncorrelated assets become highly correlated, that is a very painful experience that I know all of us have been through before. And so that's the way I think about it is like, yes, the more uncorrelated assets you get, that would be great. But then you also, you can attenuate the portfolio then to maybe have less of those negatively correlated assets. So that's the hard part is like, you have to figure out kind of what your exposures are and what your exposures are on that converging liquidity event. And then in that scenario, you might need less tail protection depending on what your asset mix is like. So that's why when we build the total portfolio solution with Cockroach in-house, we are just building it all in-house because it's very easy for us to target, not easy, but it's easier for us to target the exposures and offset them against each other versus somebody coming with, in with their individual portfolio and saying, these are like all my exposures. We're not, we're not financial advisors. We built you know, a hedge fund of funds, which is technically a commodity pool operation. But that's why we just try to build the best product we know how to build with all the world's asset classes. And obviously that's why we call <laughs> well, it. Concrete. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, right? When I talk about being able to construct portfolios with seven or eight uncorrelated sources of return. I don't mean credit equities, PE, VC, real estate, which are like basically seven equity categories, right? I mean, like I'm talking about equities, rates or equity risk, which is all of the things I just mentioned, rates, commodities, and then plus a bunch of you know, market neutral kind of, let's call them factor strategies, whether it's kind of momentum, value, quality, whatever you can, you know, we, we all know that there's a bunch of these other ones that, um, that one can allocate to readily and, and, and with relatively low fees at the moment. Right. And as you sort of, the expectation is to, to have all of these strategies that rely on fundamentally completely different, um, return drivers converge to, uh, all towards a one that's much more remote. Now, I will say that in the event of a liquidity event, you've got a, a lot of these kind of factor strategies. They're all being run by um, fairly large managers that are all kind of using le 
you know, leverage at the same time and tend to be in similar stocks. And so you can't absolutely have these liquidity events that have these, you know, quant cakes, uh, quant quakes, whatever. Oddly, those quant quakes don't tend to happen at the same time as you get these cyclical downturns, right? So, you know, you still get that diversification. But anyways, I just wanted to clarify that because I didn't want people to think that I was saying that you get sort of seven or eight different uncorrelated bets by allocating to PE and, and, and VC and, and real estate, et cetera. They're all, they're all effectively the same bet. Um, and while it may look like they're somewhat uncorrelated in um, normal market times, they're clearly, you know, derived from the same source of risk. Yeah, I got to remember that we've had I, so I many think, private conversations about these things. I know exactly Jason, what you meant. Has so anybody, uh, has, have any of your clients um, approached you and said, you know, uh, Jason, Cockroach is not a very glamorous name. You know, very, uh, it's very <laughs> visceral. And I mean, uh, yes, yes, and no. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, there's so many things with that. I mean, I think any, every entrepreneur knows that naming something sucks because every great name you come up with, you find out it's taken after you do a Google search. So it's always hard to come up with names. And, um, you know, I had the epiphany a while ago to, to name it Cockroach Fund because one, yeah, it's visceral, but it's very evocative of what we're trying to do at the portfolio level. But more importantly, what I get tired of in our industry is like, you know, I have all these sub managers, right? And then several of them have sub strategies, but all of them have like three letter acronyms. I can't remember all of them. I mean, I have like 40 to 53 letter acronyms. How am I going to remember exactly what each one of those do? And so therefore, like by calling it cockroach, it's very evocative and visceral of exactly what we're trying to do. But it's always been interesting. People always go, you know, I, I don't mind it, but I think other people would hate it. So I wouldn't call it that. But it's like, that's usually the, the feedback we get is like, I don't mind it, but I think other people would. And I'm just like, my only point at the end of the day is like, do you remember it? And yes, you know, nine, you know, 99% of people are going to remember it. And in this game that we're in, well, it's that's great. It's the, the, thing the that only thing that survives, right? I mean, and in a war of attrition, yeah, yeah. In a war of attrition, <laughs> it is the only thing that survives. Yeah, Nation Alley. <laughs> that's what I like. I think, yeah, I, I think something else to bring back, um, as, as Adam, you were talking about these quant quakes and these things that happen in these other sort of esoteric different strategies is that, is that idea of it's impossible to model. You don't know the initial set of conditions which you're, with your, which you're entering in any of these, Never mind that simple S&P and vol 20% decline, there's our deductible. You don't know where you are in the trend when that happens. You could have been in a, in a downtrend that reverts and then reasserts itself. Where was vol priced when you started in this type of situation? And that's just in that one simple example of one security and which hedges very well to the vol security, then you have all of these other types of strategies that you've mentioned that all are experiencing these same things. And you, as you say, you hope or want this non-correlation to occur, but it is a really hard problem. That's where it becomes art and uh, experience rather than, you know, it's, it's impossible to sort of say scientifically yeah. that- well, It's kind of like the, uh, the political the argument, you know, that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And, you know, you're pitting all these offensive strategies against each other, hoping that, that when, when one's failing, the others are succeeding. And, uh, you know, so that was interesting. I mean, the point that you made earlier, I think Mike was that, you know, we have portfolios full of offensive strategies <laughs> or, or offensive 
you know, we have lots of offensive holdings. TM. <laughs> right? Yeah, trademark. Exactly. But part of that, but part of what I, I want to touch on another thing that Adam brought up that I think there's two pieces I find really interesting to that, especially based on, you know, all of our discussions in the past is, you know, a lot of these alternative strategies are what we think on correlated. A lot of times, Adam, as you know, they can still fit in that four quadrant model. If like you really disaggregate those returns, you're like, that looks like an equity. That looks like a bond. So a lot of times you can even sector those out or even based on factors, you know, you kind of know if this is an offensive convergent style strategy or this is a divergent defensive style, you kind of know there. And then the one I always have trouble with is like you're saying is like the market neutral kind of global macro that almost probably deserves its own sleeve. Um, although they ended up, they end up kind of look like defensive strategies if done right, but you just didn't, you just never know what's going to happen. But my point of why I just bring up, you never know what's going to happen. Um, and that's the art of portfolio construction is below this. It's also fractal in nature. Like we have this four quadrant model, but then within each of those quadrants, we use an ensemble approach to each of those quadrants. Because once again, if you don't know what that path dependency is a priori, and you don't know exactly what things are going to look like, this is why we believe firmly in ensemble approaches because you want to make sure you cover that path dependency and you don't miss the other path dependencies. And so you want to be roughly robust in your portfolio construction. You don't want to be perfectly wrong. And so this is what we're trying to do, especially if long volatility tail risk, if, if maybe these things only pay off once every decade, you better make sure you capture that. And if you've gone with one singular strategy, you might not capture that at all. And so far, like, for example, this year alone in long volatility tail risk, we've seen dispersion of our managers of upwards of anywhere of 40% this year. And the same thing kind of happens in CTAs or the commodity trend advisors too, is this why we believe ensemble approaches there is like, you have huge dispersion in returns depending on lookbacks, trading styles, et cetera. So by creating an ensemble approach, we're trying to get like a beta-like effect or signal from these asset classes. And that's why we firmly believe in almost this fractal nature of ensembles all the way down to make sure we're as robust as possible because you never really know what it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, we're in violent agreement, obviously, on the, on the use of ensembles. The, um, <laughs> yeah, what I always find fascinating is, is this idea of, I mean, because I think most people do just gravitate towards stocks, right? Everyone sort of thinks that they understand stocks. They don't really understand jack shit. But they believe they understand stocks, or at least they're like put into stocks by default. And so they, they end up owning a, a lot of stock risk. And so this tail risk, this 3% tail risk sleeve, I think does make sense for the vast majority of people who just won't take the time to think about diversification. But if you are thoughtful about diversification, and to Mike's point, the deeper down that path you go, the more it's an R. Um, because there are so many threads of commonality that you don't that, that don't emerge from looking at the data, for example, but but are there by by construction of, of just the mechanics of how everybody get everybody's using leverage and when when leverage is cheap versus leverage is expensive and you know, leverage crashes, there's there's all kinds of dimensions of this problem. But if you can be thoughtful and bring experience to bear on constructing a truly widely di diversified um, portfolio of different sources of return, you need to devote less and less of a cost to tail hedges because that portfolio by its nature is just less vulnerable to these left tail risks. Um, and so it's nice because in theory, you do need to pay a premium for this protection, right? So to the extent that you can whittle down the amount of premium that you need to pay by effective use of thoughtful diversification, I believe that's advantageous. And also you're improving portfolio sharp ratios or you know, expected portfolio risk adjusted returns, which means that you're, you know, 
each new bet you add thoughtfully, in theory, for the same level of risk, you're adding incremental returns. So, you know, if if you can be thoughtful and go in that direction, I think we'd all agree that that's preferable. It's just that very few people have either the um, inclination or the experience, the skill set to be able to, to build those more diversified uh, portfolios from the outset. Yeah, there's just two things on that. My, my only issues are, and I agree with you, yeah, if you can build properly diversified broad portfolios and those are, we almost need to define terms on all of those, like, yeah, you could lower your uh, allocation of that premium for tail risk. That's, I couldn't, I don't disagree there. But the problem is, like we were saying before, is like, fingers crossed on 87 or 2022, I'm on the right side with my other strategies, right? That's the problem with those, those, those liquidity events is this is why I believe the tail risk is for that liquidity event because you never know where or how that liquidity event is gonna manifest itself. But the other one, Adam, that we we're kind of leaning towards that I wanted to touch on because it ties it back in with what Pierre said at the beginning about you know, trying to find the right clients is it's not only your portfolio construction and then what markets could potentially do and then the future not looking like the present or the past, but even overlaying that is this, on this tertiary level is what kind of clients do you have? So you might say, this is gonna be just fine. We're gonna manage through this, especially like a March of 2020. But if you have monthly liquidity and they're gonna treat you like an ATM because they need cash for their other investments that have gone down, well, then you've crystallized those losses and it destroyed your entire portfolio philosophy. And I don't think a lot of managers think about that, that your clients matter almost more than any of your portfolio construction because if you can't let your portfolio construction do what it's supposed to do, um, it can dramatically affect your ability to Yeah, no, of course. I mean, choosing the right... Look, the, in the end, the clients choose you, right? Because, um, right. you know, they, people don't arrive at, wow, I really need a, um, a mutiny-like strategy or I really need a cockroach-like strategy um, without having gone through a fairly arduous journey to get there, right? Like, there's a lot of reading. There's probably a lot of pain in, the background, in their background from an investment standpoint. Right. That, that I always say nobody goes to God on prom night. Right. So you, almost certainly you have experienced some misfortune in your investment journey. And that has, you know, remember Winston Churchill, most people stumble over the truth, pick themselves up and keep and keep walking in the same direction. Right. So just because you've experienced pain doesn't mean you're receptive to looking inward, looking outward, self-examination. And, and trying to figure out what you may have done wrong and then, and then try to improve things. Most people just don't. Those that do, some fraction of them will end up, you know, exploring things in, in the direction and, and, and find us, right? And so they'll have stumbled into, wow, there's a whole world of diversification that I didn't know existed and that I, I haven't previously tapped and I want to go explore that. And then also others will say, I, you know, I still really like equities, but how could I buy insurance against my equity portfolio? Because I learned the hard way that that equity portfolio is extremely vulnerable to these kind of 2008 or, or March 2020 type events, right? So it's just, it's highly journey dependent. And you end up, in the end, you don't really end up choosing your clients because there's such a vanishingly small proportion of individuals that even arrive on your doorstep in the beginning, right? That That typically... By the time they get there, they're already kind of mostly seeing eye to eye. And hopefully they're not going to make those mistakes and you're going to go through that journey from that point on together. Well, luckily, luckily we, we crossed 8 billion people this week, right? Or we're getting close now. So like we only need a, a tiny fraction of a fraction to get it. But like almost I'm glad you said that is like that journey, though. And maybe this is helpful is when does that pain click over? Like Pierre was asking in the beginning is like 
so you have the vast majority of people, especially in the US, they're going to be do their job, their 401k are going to be in a 60 yep. 40 target date fund, right? None of them are ever even going to watch this, yep. you know, show. Like, yep. like, let's be honest, they're not like, so, and, and they're, as long as they keep up with their neighbors and both on the, on the pain side and on the, on the benefit side, they don't really care. That's fine. Um, and you know, good, you know, mazel tov. I hope they, you know, enjoy like their family and friends and all that stuff. And they're not us that are neurotic <laughs> thinking about markets 24 seven, which is great. The second, then maybe part of that journey is if people move away from that is then they think about portfolio construction, maybe beyond 60, 40 is this is what I find too, is then now it's about those hero trades. It's about being a, a global macro wizard, right? Like I'm predicting inflation is going to, we're in a, we're in a uh, commodity super cycle and I'm going to time this perfectly, right? And I'm going to be the next George Soros, but eventually they learn that they're not the next George Soros. So to actually get to proper portfolio diversification, it's a form of ego destroying process that I think is really hard for people to go through. It's that pain. It's like, how many times can you feel yeah. that pain? I think Pierre before it's like, it becomes an ego destroying process of going, oh, I can't predict the future. I need proper broad diversification and I'm willing to underperform my neighbors when they're doing well, outperform them when they're doing poorly and be counter cyclical against them, but not measure myself against my neighbors and not measure myself against George Soros thinking I'm going to be the next great global macro hedge fund manager. So it's almost through that pain, you get to an ego destructive process of going like, I'm not a genius. I can't predict the future. I don't have a crystal ball. You know, how do I broadly diversify myself? And I'll deal with the pain of uh, those certain sleeves or asset classes that aren't doing well this year because I know next year they might be. Yeah, doing just wow. Fine. Incredible insight. Completely agree. Yeah, those, yeah. those hero I, trades I are. I, yeah. Those hero trades are really interesting too. Like if you think about commodity super cycles in the knots, right? There was a 63% decline in there. Right. And in 1970, there was a 37% three year decline in commodities. Right. Yeah. You were on the right, you were on the right track. That was the best asset class in those decades. Yeah. It was awesome. And you got, you know, really kicked along the way. And how were you going to make it through that journey? It's not point to point. The journey matters. And, you know, I think today in it's increasingly hard to some degree today, we've both got microphones now that we can share with the world and writing that we can get. We don't need to be, you know, take out an ad in the wall street journal. But in that has come the other challenge of everybody out there is no, no, tell me, tell me like a fifth grader. I'm like, no, fifth grader can't understand this. This isn't beyond if you actually have to, yes, you and your money has to reach beyond the fifth grade. Yes, it does. I had someone tell me, can you use one syllable words or less and explain why this matters to me? And I'm like, one sure, syllable get fucked. or less? No, but I'm like, is there a less than one syllable word? Where else can you go from feeling the most triumphant to completely humiliated than the market, right? Where else? I I I just want to I just want to go or down. So, the, it's the only place where you're like yeah. your P and L. I want to go down the middle. Yeah. <laughs> He's like you know. And then Adam touched on it earlier though, and it's based on 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 what Mike was saying is like everybody goes. I understand stocks, but I don't understand when you start talking to me about derivatives and like and put options. And I'm like, really, you understand stocks? Well. Tell me about a stock you understand. And I start having to break that down. Or the first question I always ask that's interesting, who's the CFO yeah. of that company? No, you know, tell me who the CFO of Amazon is. Everybody loves Amazon. Do you know who the CFO is? No, you don't. But the other thing, like my, my partner, Taylor Pearson, wrote this great essay called Reality Has a Surprising Amount of Detail. And it was a simple essay that started with, draw me a can opener. 
A can opener is mechanically probably one of the simplest things, but you can't draw a can opener. Reality has a surprising mm -hmm. amount of details. And what you think you understand about stocks, and you don't even understand that they're a derivative of a derivative of a derivative, you know, and, and all the different aspects of the business. The other thing, like, it always amazes me, like, just value investors is like, if, if Jeff Bezos is making decisions under opacity, do you think you can look at, like, his quarterly reports and you say, Jeff's doing a good job or a bad job. I'm going to outguess him here. Like, that's insane to me. But that's what people do every day. No, I, I love And then if I, they say, if I don't understand it, I won't invest in it. I'm like, well, do you understand a toilet? Because you better have an outhouse that you can understand that you're going to the bathroom in. No, but, if you need to understand well, something you know, before you're going to. Yeah. What they understand is the buy and the sell button. And that's what they, that's what they're really saying. And this is yeah. what you've had great guests on, like, you know, Mike Green, et cetera, with the passive target date, all that stuff is like what we've done as a society is made it so easy to buy and sell a 6040 portfolio. And that's the rub. It's not about I understand stocks, I understand bonds, I understand 6040 is I understand how to hit a buy and sell button on my phone app. You know, and that's what that's what the easy button is, is actually the buy and sell button, not understanding well, what's actually your in point, my Jason. Stocks think, go up, you know, what, printer go burr. Great point. Yeah. What 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 makes an index <laughs> ETF possible? Yeah. An amazing amount of technology. But do people, you know, people just think, oh, I'm just buying the average. But what you know, what is it? What is the engineering that makes that ETF, that, that S&P 500 ETF that almost everybody owns even possible? What, like, you know, you said derivative of derivative of derivative, but that's exactly what they're, they're getting and they don't realize that, right? Right. And then, and that's just like you were saying, that's a pretty straightforward index ETF. I also ask that people too, is it, is it market cap weighted or float cap weighted? Yeah. They don't know the answer to that either. And that's just the index ETFs. If you start getting into other emerging market ETFs or, in, or any sort of other factor style ETFs, if you're not digging through that perspective, you have no idea what you own. And if you did, you'd be really shocked sometimes. And it's not written for a fifth grader. <laughs> <laughs> How do we get the old men yelling at clouds? Well, Come on, guys. I, I want to be a cockroach. <laughs> I, I want to be a cockroach. Yeah, there I, you go. I, Conversion complete. <laughs> Got me. Okay, okay. We've yeah. talked about we've talked about diversification. We've talked about tail hedging. We've talked about some of the behavioral issues around that. Is there anything else? We're we're getting. We're Dude, I could do up. another two hours on ego down. Where we've had a couple of uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So to me, that yeah, was such exactly. a that yeah, was such yeah, key insight. That that was yes. awesome. I'm gonna be reeling about that. It, it is. <laughs> That that was that was uh, that was that was that was hand tossed to Adam yeah, total, for him to knock that one out of humiliation. the park. Um, yes. One thing we can say. <laughs> yeah. The one thing we should actually talk about uh, is capital efficiency and how much that factors into what we do um, and what what yeah. you guys do, for example. So, what's interesting is I I get these um, retorts all the time that like okay, you know, CTAs or trend followers, you know, they do horrible for like decades at a time. You know, the 2010s, um, they didn't do well. I'm like, okay, let's use, a, let's use an index as an example. Okay, the Stock Gen Trend Index in the 2010, uh, 2010 to 2020 um, produced a 2% CAGR. So 2% annualized. And I go, okay. And the stock market obviously just absolutely destroyed it. You know, we're talking double digits. I go, that's fine. But you're thinking about um, on a cash basis, you would have to sell something to buy that trend following. But what if you could stack that in there using capital efficiency 
And therefore, you're carrying a positive carry hedge that should hopefully jump out behind the curtain when inflation takes off and give you a high beta to inflation to really protect and ballast your portfolio. What if you could layer that in and now you had a positive carry hedge to inflation? Like, this is what people aren't thinking about. And I know you guys, I'm preaching to the choir here. But that's what I think about all the time is like within our portfolios, we can use that. Uh, I'm going to use the, the terrible word of leverage, but implicit leverage of the futures and option space. So that way we can hold, you know, 50% exposure each to global stocks and global bonds. But then we're hedging out a lot of those risks with our long volatility and our commodity trend. And so by stacking them in there together, the idea is we're giving the clients what they want, which is 50-50 exposure, you know, close to 60-40 of global stocks, global bonds. And then hopefully those other assets can carry flat to slightly positive and or slightly negative and therefore they're not even thinking about those other asset classes until they need them most and the reason why that is so important is behaviorally once again you have to be willing to carry these i know you guys have seen it a million times it's like most people won't carry classical tail risk hedging because they're looking at that negative line item year after year after year after year after year and they'll get rid of it i mean you know rodrigo has amazing experience with this as well but if you can have it set up in the same portfolio where people are seeing that they're keeping up with their neighbors with this global stocks, global bond portfolio, but then as soon as their neighbors are feeling pain, they've got these other asset classes that are jumping out to protect them. That to me is the best of all worlds. And you can only get that with capital efficiency. And it's unfortunate like for all of us is we have to construct these portfolios um, within commingled funds, et cetera, where we can get access to this cheap implicit leverage. And leverage is a totally different story if you're using it to buy more hedges or things that are uncorrelated. This is the key to actually thinking about leverage. Like, for example, like if you go to an FCM, the futures clearing merchant, and you're long stocks, but you have a negatively correlated put, they require less margin because they understand it's less risky Mm -hmm. for you to do so. And so I think that's what people are missing out on. And I wish more people knew about the futures industry. I mean, it's got a bad rap for a lot of good reasons. But the more and more you learn about the capital efficiency that you can experience there, the more... um, in more colors and paintbrushes you get to, to create uh, this beautiful canvas because you have more tools in, the, in, in that toolkit for you to be able to layer in these hedges or these uncorrelated strategies that you wouldn't have access to before. And you don't have to worry about necessarily your cash base because you're just using a capital efficient cross margin to be able to construct these portfolios, which allows you to do these very interesting yeah, things. Yeah, but I mean, it's only recently since... That's great that we, you know, we, we talk we, about... Since investors have really had an opportunity to be able to take advantage of this. Um, you know, the advent of some of these um, levered ETFs, like, like the, um, the Wisdom Tree 9060 ETF. Um, sadly, there aren't equivalents in Canada, but what the, the alternative direction is to um, buy these hybrid funds, right? Where you've got kind of a base layer, um, which is whatever, 50, 60, 100%, or sometimes even more than 100% exposure to a, a core long-only strategic portfolio like 60-40, but it doesn't need to be 60-40. And then you just, you layer other strategies, other diversified strategies on top, including, for example, tail hedges. We obviously run um, a mutual fund that does this in the US and and an ETF that does this in Canada. But this is a nice alternative if you don't want to build this sort of capital efficient um, multi-strategy portfolio yourself, right? And then you can lean on, because I I like what you said too, the, the nice thing about, um, only a product that does a lot of these things internally is that you know that the manager is most aware of the strengths and weaknesses and diversification potential um, of all of the constituent parts, right? And so the, the end investor is at least once removed from that, right? 
they don't know what's going on in the portfolio exactly, even though they might have a general understanding of the strategies that are, that are happening, but they certainly are not as familiar with the portfolio construction, when the portfolios rebalance, et cetera. So the, the manager has an advantage over the investor. So allowing a manager to put a bunch of these pieces together in a portfolio like happens with the Cockroach portfolio and like we do with our, with our mutual fund and ETFs, I think that actually has a real advantage too. There are some disadvantages, but that's definitely an advantage that you can lean on the manager to have a, a better understanding of, what's, of what all the moving parts are and be able to ha have the opportunity to put it together more effectively. Well, I also think that the line item risk yeah, absolutely. is another major benefit there. And so that, that you don't see any of these strategies that are in a sort of a constant erosion or those strategies they're having are struggling for a period. You don't get to make the mistake because you don't see it. You don't get to say, hey, well, what's this guy doing in here after 10 years of 2% a year? I don't want him anymore, which is what most people would do. And uh, lo and behold... You know, that, that trend following. Of course, even the, you know, the, the Goliath in, uh, in the room, U.S. equities, ha have gone through well over a decade period yeah. on multiple <laughs> occasions delivering less returns than T-bills, right? So, you know, it's, it's perfectly natural for, yeah. for all strategies and all asset classes to go through these stretches of time, sometimes multiple decades of delivering near zero return and lots of volatility and, and ups and downs and drawdowns. Um, it's, it's, it's not unique to, to trend following. And in fact, historically trend following strategies, uh, and CTAs in general have, uh, have had fewer of these types of long stretches than, um, you would, you would get from global equities or, or even yeah. global bonds. But it's also the, it's, the uh, other thing to keep in mind is the leverage aversion, right? The fact that leverage makes people cringe means that probably there's not enough portfolios doing this, right? That. In fact, that market, this, this is not at a saturation point. We are not boggleheads here. This has not reached critical mass in that, you know, axiomatically, if we're all bullish or all bearish, the last selling or the last buying has been done and it can't go any further in that direction. What we're talking about here, I think, is quite novel in a very small part of the overall markets, meaning that there's a lot more bandwidth, a lot more increase in opportunities here for people to allocate capital to this where the market's going to be inefficient and provide opportunities for those inefficiencies to be realized. And I think that leverage aversion to me makes me excited when people are still scared of leverage and they're like, no, I can't do it. I'm <laughs> like, ah, oh, I'm onto something. It's like tobacco companies in 1999. This is going to be great. CalPERS just yeah. sold it all. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but like to your, to your point about that is like the the leverage aversion is smart in the sense of like every blow up in history is for people leveraging up short vol trades like so yeah avoid <laughs> yeah. leveraging up short vol trades but like if proper diversification matters and like um, part of it though that like Adam was saying the, the, what we can do with the ability is to do these things in in one fund or one vehicle like all of us are doing is that there's a lot of behavioral advantages as well. And nobody wants to talk about this because it sounds pedantic, but there's been tons of literature on like the babysitter tax of having a manager manage a portfolio like this and force you to rebalance where you personally maybe wouldn't want to. Like for example, when I was actually visiting you guys down in your island paradise, we were doing our, our Q1 podcast update. 
and I was talking about at this point, we're rebalancing and buying bonds after bonds had had their worst start in like 150 years. I could hear <laughs> audible gasps like on that on that webinar, but like this is what we do. This is what we do when we rebalance between those four quadrants. Is like I'm happy to be buying bonds here because I don't know if they're going to turn around soon, later, maybe never. But this is how we. This is what we do to give a proper portfolio diversification because all of the news, everybody's telling them you should know shouldn't own bonds. Bonds are dead. Bonds are never coming back. Um, and you guys have been through this stuff before. And it's just like these things always happen. And like I started with that, that bull and bear case are, are most solidified at tops and bottoms. And, and it's really easy to really believe in it at that at that point, because everything's telling you this is either a terrible move or the best move ever. And you're about to you're probably about you to. Know, get I, probably I, uh, there was a whole part of our. Yeah, go ahead. Jason, how do you think about. Well, I was just, how do you think about as you select the managers, how, are you all systematic when you're looking through managers? Do you have some systematic managers and some managers that offer their own personal insights? How do you, how do you think about that as you construct your array of managers? So for the most part, it's systematic. Um, but the other part is there's nothing that's truly systematic because there's always a human being that came up with the model that they created the algo from. Yep. And so, and so we always talk about it's, you know, man or woman plus machine is the current state of play and the current state of affairs. So you use the systematic approaches to hopefully negate a lot of your own behavioral biases. But at the same time, any systematic approach is taken in a certain data set, and you always have to be careful they have a clean data set. And you also have to be careful of the, um, the tenor of that data set. And so that's why we like that a little bit of discretion on that human overlay of like, you know, especially if you're in vol markets, they, they, they literally structurally change every three to five years. So you need somebody to think about creatively the art of like, what could actually be going wrong here that I'm not seeing in the data set that I've run my systematic approach to. So we do like managers are primarily systematic, but I don't mind taking a little bit of those that broad diversification and sprinkling a little in discretion, because if that creates another wrinkle of diversification through semi uncorrelation, that's going to improve the overall book. So it's always thinking about, yes, primarily systematic because I want to avoid behavioral biases, but um, you, that's kind of naive to think it could be pure systematic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a dimension, but you yeah. skew much more on the systematic side yeah. of that dimensionality. Because it's easier to it's it's easier to judge that if somebody's discretionary, like it's impossible to judge. As as I was like making fun of my value investing friends, if they're picking twenty to thirty equities a year over five to six decades, they don't have a large enough sample size to know if they got lucky or not. So I don't I don't know how you can live with <laughs> yeah. yourself. Preach. Agreed. I was going to say uh, I uh, I've always been um, I've always got a, a gotten a um, a chill up the spine or down the spine. Is it a chill? <laughs> Your I've spine. Always, I've always got yeah, it's my yeah. So then it must be it must be up. Um, I've always gotten a chill from from and it's a, one of my favorite quotes, which is the um, in a fair market, uh, stocks return to their rightful owners. And um, that was that was resonating while you were talking about the uh, the out of the money the twenty percent out of the money puts that kick in and 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 buy you the stocks at the worst possible time at a time when you personally might not or behaviorally might not be willing to, that automatically kicks in. And so, you know, how do you explain that? I mean, so that to me defines the quote that, that, were, that defines the idea that, that the biggest buyers of shares in a bear market are the smartest investors and or, 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 or yeah, th you know, the ones with the, the, rule, the, ones with the rules, the more most disciplined investors, maybe, is, is the, yeah. 
Yeah, or it's it's and it's not about who's the smart or discipline yeah. or everything. It just helps your compounding, right? It's just really it's really that simple. And if you can reduce that volatility tax, your compounding is going to do better. The other one that drives me nuts is there's a large robo advisor that part of their advertising is like. It, you need yep. to stay, it's time in the markets. Cause if you missed out the 10 best days in the market, you would have had a lower Kager. But what they don't point out is if, if you avoid the 10 worst days in the market, your Kager dramatically improves <laughs> over those 10 best days in the market. So that's, <laughs> that's what it's really about. And more importantly, if you could yeah. be rebuying like and rebalancing that. then be yeah. even better. Yeah. And they happen beside each other. Yeah, exactly. The best days happen beside the worst days. So you're in a bear market. It's up 10, down 10. Like, okay, you're going to be buying and selling that every day. Like it's, it's one of the most nonsensical pieces of uh, yeah. financial pornography that they produce. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, adding that on any, any other final topics you want to tackle beside ego death? <laughs> no, the, well, the only thing that I think this is interesting. The only thing that, and I don't think any of us have really talked this through before, like privately, is like the really interesting thing to me about all the portfolios we construct is they're amazingly liquid portfolios with the financial instruments that we have access to. But you're missing out on all of those private asset classes, you know, like global real estate, et cetera, is a much larger market than these financial markets. So to me, the 2.0 version of what we all do is like, you can overlay these liquid portfolios on top of these illiquid portfolios with some capital efficiency, and they create this amazing feedback loop between them. Um, so, you know, when you need liquidity the most, you've had this very liquid portfolio with convex instruments that helps, you know, make, you know, capital calls, et cetera, on your privates. Or same thing is like, imagine an environment like we could have this year. Um, let's just say, you know, I'll be frank, long volatility and tail risk, depending on management style, has not done great this year in a drawdown in the S&P because it's a slow, a slow grinding drawdown. Like, for example, a... A VIX and, and the VIX index is non-tradable and please don't quote VIX for a measure of tail risk. But the VIX, for example, let's just use a heuristic that um, it's the rule of 16. So whatever the VIX is divided by 16, that'll give you an idea of what the expected daily volatility is. So at a VIX of 32, you're expecting 2% moves up or down on a daily basis, right? So if the market is, is selling off negative 1.75 like every day, then you're not going to see a pop in volatility. That's just the way the market works. So as the market's grinding down, a lot of long volatility and terror strategies are not going to necessarily do so well as, as this year's kind of seen a little bit. And that's why people have been worried about their protection. But at the same time this year, if you had those commodity trend uh, followers in your portfolio, they did very well this year. And people go, yeah, because they do well in those slower grinding recession style environments. And I'm like, not so fast. Like you really don't know. Like it's just kind of luck. Like hopefully the other markets are diverging and they're catching trends, but they just happen to coincide with slow grinding sell-offs like like this year or, or 2008. But there's no guarantee of that. So to me, is if once you can the, the 2.0 version is adding in these private deterministic cash flows, those can really help portfolios. If you get in an environment where the market's grinding down, you're not seeing divergent trends in your commodity portfolio, your, 60, your stocks and bonds are down. There can be environments where all of those asset classes are not performing well. But if you had a little bit of determined cash flows on the monthly or quarterly basis or annual basis, that can really help a portfolio. And if the goal is to hold all the world's asset classes, I think we're missing out on a lot of that other side. I also think that there's a, and I think you touched on this earlier, there, there is an, um, a need or a desire anyway for entrepreneurs who have some sort of growing business. They have some of these liquid assets and their business may go through a different cycle of cash requirements. And there's nothing that makes an entrepreneur happier than when they're 
large business requires a cash call, whether it's from expansion or from a tough time, to be able to go to their portfolio and look at that portfolio and be able to draw those assets to another place where they either see opportunity or are needing to inject capital. When you have a pro-cyclical portfolio, pro-cyclically growth-oriented portfolio, it's largely going to coincide. Not perfectly. I mean, if you're selling, you know, if you own parking lots beside the bankruptcy trustee and we're going through a big drawdown, you know, your, your business is booming. Yeah. You're fine in, 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 in the drawdown. But, you know, most businesses for entrepreneurs are largely pro-cyclical. So they would like to see their portfolio have this liquidity and have this counter-cyclical nature so that they can absolutely do these things. And when you, when you can get an entrepreneur of large size to think about their portfolio in that sense, I think it's very helpful in under, helping them understand how they should be thinking about managing these large pools of assets. Yeah, no entrepreneur should own equities. It's really that simple. Like, that's why we built our defensive strategies because I always think about it from an entrepreneur perspective. And you're saying like, how do you convince clients? Well, it's, it's, I find it even harder to convince entrepreneurs because the way we think about it is like, it's an entrepreneurial put option, right? If I'm an entrepreneur, there's no way, if I have any savings left over after I can't reinvest in my business, like there's no way I should be buying equities. I'm already leveraged long in this long GDP environment. I'm, I'm, I'm requiring low interest rates, high liquidity. I'm requiring all those things. I'm levered to the hilt to that. For me to add equities to that is adding another layer of leverage in the same direction I'm already headed. Like the only thing they should be buying is defensive assets. And the other thing, and we were talking about this the other day, is like, I, it'd be really interesting to see even corporate treasury balance sheets should primarily be in defensive assets. But we haven't seen that yet either. And that's another layer of trying to convince people that maybe they should be thinking, like you said, counter-cyclically about the way, the way they're, um, they're assessing their treasury yeah, portfolio within point. their business. All right. Awesome. Gentlemen, well, that's been a wonderful journey through well, one last question. the mutiny portfolio. Go ahead, Pierre. What's a, uh, Jason, yeah. what's a hobby or an interest of yours that you could talk about for hours? No, excluding, excluding investing. I thought you were <laughs> excluding. Yeah. I was waiting. I, I was waiting for the. I was waiting for you to have like another philosophical question at the end, and I was like, "Oh, he's giving me a softball." Then I realized this is the most philosophical question there is. If only there was a um, hint within view. God, I, I I wish I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you get obviously. Yeah. Obvious. Obviously, I know a little bit about Acid? wine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but actually not that much. What's interesting is actually my, my girlfriend's a sommelier and I mean, I don't, I don't have, you know, maybe a 10th of the knowledge she has. I just, just have, you know, knowledge, more knowledge than maybe 99% of people. Um, what I actually, this is interesting. Maybe I'll take it slightly tangentially as I, I tend to never <laughs> answer questions directly is what I love about what we all do is it incorporates almost everything in life. So no matter what I'm learning about, I'm an, I have an insatiable curiosity. So, so my hobbies are around my curiosity, reading, thinking, listening, watching stuff. Like, so it goes back to almost like a liberal arts education. When I was in, uh, being educated, I studied comparative religions because it, to me incorporated everything, history, politics, psychology, it incorporated everything. And then when I got into wine, what I loved about that was um, it was a bottomless pit. It was endless because no matter if you knew every viticultural region in the world, every wine, except for, for example, there's 2000 varietals in Italy alone, even if you learned all of those, the next year's vintage is going to reset all of that. So it, it, for somebody with insatiable curiosity, these are the, the venues you want to be in. And for me, being in this global macro total portfolio solution space, 
to me, everything in my life is my hobby slash my business slash my art. They all are incorporated in one. So I didn't mean to sidestep your answer, but like that's how I, from every movie I watch, it makes me think about portfolio construction. Like I'm unfortunately, like that's all I think about is portfolio construction all day, every day, but it allows me to traffic in these other avenues. It goes back to when I was a commercial real estate developer. What I hated is all those guys read the same trade publications and therefore they all created the same tracked housing. Where if I was looking at things from fashion, from movies, from et cetera, I would create very different projects. So it's about having a broad scope of hopefully hobbies or interests and those feed back into the, the art that we all produce with creating these portfolios. I love it. You know, I'm just, Pierre, I'm just glad he didn't answer your question with it. another question. That's his <laughs> usual tactic. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> My questions come out of the false answers that we were given. That's all I'm trying to do is get rid of all these answers I was given. (laughs) I love it. Where, where can everybody find out about uh, Jason and mutiny? And uh, I know you do a side hustle in, uh, in the uh, pirate radio. I don't know if it's a uh, side hustle in the, in, uh, in that or whatever that is, but where can people find you and get more of you? Yeah, you can learn about us at mutinyfund.com. That's mutinyfundsingular.com. On Twitter, I'm at Jason Mutiny. And then Mike's referencing, I do a uh, a weekly show with our buddy, Corey Hofstein, called Pirates of Finance. Uh, you can find us on YouTube, um, and we go live every Friday at, at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon That's Pacific. That's like a, a, a competitor to uh, resolve reps. Yeah, yeah, we didn't we didn't go at the same time because we didn't want to dominate them. <laughs> that we would have been an, be a, obvious, a so. direct act of violence right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Back.